Good morning. Am I on here and everybody hear me? Everybody that wants to hear me? All right, I hope everybody had their coffee. I had my coffee today. Life is good. Had a good meal at the Hilton. And I'm excited about us spending some time together thinking about family and the value of family and this concept of connecting the dots. Now, I want you to think about what your favorite Christmas movie is. One of my favorites is It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I guess technically that's a New Year's Eve movie, but we're going to count it as a Christmas movie. But I want you to think about, let's see, who all here has seen It's a Wonderful Life? We have, somebody please take these wonderful young people and introduce them to the old people culture. All right, so it's, I'm just kidding, you don't have to. But It's a Wonderful Life. In this, you have uh, George who has grown up with this desire to travel the world. He wants to experience the world. He has all these grand plans of things he's going to do, life. He's going to uh, experience things. He's going to start at events. But a series of events in the course of his life never allow him to do so. He doesn't go away to war because in the process of saving his younger brother, he injures an ear and so cannot pass the physical. When he's getting ready to travel, then his father passes away and he has to take over the business. When he gets married and they get ready to take off and travel the world on their honeymoon, then you have a market crash and he has to stay and use all the money that they would have used for their honeymoon to save the, the savings and loan. And so he ends up spending his life in town that is gradually being taken over by a wealthy banker. And as he's taking over the town, then gradually George begins to just deal with the grind of everyday life. And when $8,000 goes missing because of his absent-minded uncle, he thinks he's going to go to jail when the bank examiners come. Mr. Potter, who owns basically most of the town, has turned against him. Actually, he's the one who has the $8,000. And he decides his life isn't worth living. And so he's going to jump off a bridge and take his life because he thinks he's worth more dead because of his life insurance than he is alive. And so all these people are praying for him. And now this is good Hollywood. This is not good theology necessarily. And God sends, according to the story, an angel named Clarence who's trying to get his wings. What happens in the story, what happens to George, for those of you who've seen it? What does Clarence give? What gift does Clarence give to George? He takes something away and in process gives him a gift. Does anybody remember? This is the audience participation portion of the lesson. See who all's awake and who's with me. He lets him see what the world would be like without him. And he sees what would happen to his wife. His brother would have died. And because his brother would have died, then. Uh, a troop carrier full of soldiers during the war would have died because his brother wasn't there to save them. And you just show a series of events, and he came to realize that while he thought his life was worthless and meaningless, and that he was better off dead, he came to realize that people's lives were better because he lived. I want us to think today about the power of, of relationships as we think about connecting the dots how do we connect the faith of our young people 
that they have today to the people that they will come become 10 years from now and 20 years from now? How do we connect faith to the next generation? What I'd like to talk about this morning is I'd like to talk about what I call faith factors. There are going to be a couple of key passages that I want you to hang on to today. One is going to come from uh, the lips and pen of Moses, the other from Paul. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, near the end of his life, is reminding Timothy of where his faith came from. Now we're going to come back to this in our third lesson. But he says, knowing from whom you have learned them. He says, Timothy, remember where you received your faith from. And he says, from your childhood you have known the sacred writings. And he's challenging him to walk in what was given him literally from his childhood. I like to have what I call a biblical bullseye for my lessons. I know that we're not going to remember everything we, we hear in every sermon. My guess is Doug doesn't remember every sermon he's ever preached and everything he ever said. And so my thought is if, if, if we as preachers don't remember everything we said last week, it's really not fair for everybody to. But if you can remember 2 Timothy chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 6, and that retention is relational, then you'll have the heart of this lesson. 2 Timothy 3, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and retention is relational. Now I'm going to do something that we don't normally do in classes, definitely not in sermons, and something that I don't normally do outside of a classroom. But I'm going to spend some time just in class today looking at some research. And I hope that this research will undergird the significance of what we're talking about today as we think about connecting the dots, taking faith to the next generation that they'll have the rest of their lives. These are some of the books and articles that I'm going to refer to throughout this class. And so I'm grateful that we're going to have PowerPoint because the quotes will be on the screen. And as you see this parade of quotes, I hope that the mass of those quotes will drive home to our hearts the significance, the consistency, and the truth of what we're talking about as we wrestle with this idea that retention is relational. I want us to think about two key concepts that I see coming out in the research and that parents have power and people need people. So let's start off with this focus on parents. As you talk about what influences a person's life, there may be this tendency to think that what in influences a young person's life would be their friends. And friends do influence us. As I came up through my life, uh, many friends have influenced me. And uh, I think of Johnny back there. We've known each other a long, long time. And Friends influence our lives, right? But I want us to realize that what the research says is that the primary influences on our faith are not our friends. I'm not saying friends don't matter. I'm not saying friends don't have an impact. But they're not at the top of the list when you look at what the research says about why we keep our faith. The book Soul Searching reveals the findings of a research team based in, uh, 
in California, where at the time they did this, the National Study of Youth and Religion, it was the largest study of the religious lives of young people in the United States done to that date. There has been a wave, a flood of research that has come out since that time. But in this particular book, Soul Searching, they talk about their research findings, and there actually have been a number of research processes that have grown out of this initial research. In fact, one of the conferences I went to uh, on family and working with young people and teaching in Christian education, one of those researchers talked about what they were doing with that research moving forward. But what they found is the overwhelming conclusion, in fact, one of the researchers said, basically we found, and what we say to parents is, you'll get what you are. That the biggest influence on the religious lives of young people is the religious faith lived in front of them or not lived in front of them by their parents. That parents, if you're thinking about what kind of faith you want your young people to have, you'll get what you are. What you value, what you model in front of them, what you talk about, that will have the biggest influence on them. That doesn't mean they're robots. Young people are not robots. Okay, They have their own mind and their own passions and their own personalities. But the research is overwhelming. And what's the key in this research is they're doing 360 research. They are interviewing at time, this time, those who are teenagers, but they're also interviewing their parents. But a lot of this is coming directly from the teenagers. It's not somebody older saying, oh, I hear, here's what I think a teenager thinks. They're actually asking the teenagers. A lot of times as older folks, we draw conclusions about what we... I can remember many times I think about working with Horizons Leadership Camp, or I work with Titus Camp now at Heritage, and a lot of those camps folks will sit around the table and say, well, young people want this, and young people want that, and I think they'd like this as a theme, and I, th I often would say, has anybody asked? Okay, we, we, we have lots of ways to get in touch with them through social media and email. Why don't we just ask what they want us to talk about? So that's what they tried to do in this research, and what the young people said is that the biggest influence in their religious lives for mom and dad. I think about study that was done in USA Today weekend with 250,000 teenagers. 71% of them said the biggest influence in their lives were the parents. Compared to only around 70%, I think it was only 21% mentioned their peers. Now, I think for a lot of us, before you saw that, you might have been tempted to think that our friends have the biggest influence on us and our parents come next. That's not what the research said. When I was working on my dissertation, because my passion was training leaders and teachers in the Lord's Church and had been for many years working with future ministers camps, and we've got several guys who came through those camps here today, I did my research on what are the factors that motivate Bible majors at our schools and the churches of Christ to want to go into ministry. And so what we were trying to do is, what are the factors that all of them have in common, irregardless of where they're going to school and where they live? Not just by state, but by country. And then, are, are there differences? In other words, are there different factors or influences in Nigeria or India as compared to the United States? And so as we did so, we looked at Bible majors from 20 
different brotherhood schools in four different countries. And we had 11 schools in the United States, and so you can see the numbers on the screen and a little over 500 Bible majors that participated in my study. But as you look at the numbers in the, the U.S. that participated in my study, then you can see the a couple of schools right here in town participated in my study. Now what I want you to notice is they had, we ended up with 29 factors that we presented to them, and we had a process we went through determining those factors. Some of it was exploring God's Word and seeing what was identified there as factors motivating somebody to want to tell people about Jesus. We also looked at a whole lot of research and what other studies were identifying as factors motivating people's decisions. We did pilot testing where we took the survey and, and gave it out in a setting that it would not be given out in during the study and gave those individuals an opportunity to add or take away. And so we ended up with 29 factors, and we asked them to note every factor that influenced their decision to train to go into some form of teaching ministry in the Lord's Church. And then we asked them to rank them. So we not only knew the factors, but we knew the power of the factors. So you've got the top factors out of the 29 for the four countries. For us, we're focusing, I'll be in Panama in a couple of months, they'd be a lot more concerned with the, the second category. But we're concerned with the first category. And what you'll notice is at the top of the list, it's often internal things that influences a person's desire to tell people about Jesus. Concern that they're lost, a desire to help people, and uh, this sense that God has given them gifts and opportunities to lead them here, that God has been working in their lives to try to get them to this point. So those are internal motivations. Then you start running into people motivations. And all of these numbers are percentages. So I want you to notice... What is the first people influence that's on my list? It's family. And literally, the wording said parents and family. In other words, uh, one of the things I try to tell parents when I'm talking to them, do you wish there were more elders and deacons in the church? Do you wish there were more preachers and youth ministers? Do you wish there were more missionaries? Great, then do something about it because you are the ones with the most power to do it. If you want more elders, then create more elders. If you want more deacons, then start talking to your young people about deacons. If you want more Bible class teachers, start talking to your young people about it. Because the research I'm finding over and over says that those, at least half of those who are in our brotherhood schools, half of those who are down the street at Faulkner, half of those that are down the street at Ambridge, half of those that are over at Freed Hardman, half of those that are with us up in North Alabama in, uh, at Heritage are saying, the reason I'm here is because my parents said this mattered. Family has influence. And another study done, not by USA Weekend, but USA Today, they noted that 76% of young people wished they had more time with their parents. So our parents are having the biggest influence, but more and more young people are saying, I can't get enough time with mom and dad. In a study that's recorded in the book Sticky Faith, in other words, it's about what kind of faith sticks, by Kara Powell and her team out of Fuller Seminary in California. That's where a lot of your youth research is coming out of in the last probably 15 or 20 years. But they researched 11,000 teenagers in 561 different Christian religious groups. 
And in that they found that 12% of the young ladies they talked to said they had regular meaningful faith conversations with their mom. And only 5% said they had meaningful conversations with their dad. So the research is saying the big influencers are mom and dad. But what the young people are saying is, I don't really get much chance to talk to them. And when I do, I very rarely get conversations, meaningful, regular conversations about faith in any form. And what Powell and her team found in their research is, they found that not only do parents have a powerful influence while their children are in the home, but that even as they move out of the home and into that early career moment in life or move into education or skill training, they continue to have an influence in their lives. The research is overwhelming. At the top of the list of influencers, you find mom and dad. And some of you may be saying, well, I knew that before you started. And some may have been thinking, no, I thought it was their friends. But I'm here to tell you the research is overwhelming and God had figured it out long before that research came out. I didn't need that research to know it. Because when I go to God's Word, God emphasizes the role of the family in being a conduit to take faith to the next generation in family. It has been said, I remember one book we read many years ago in graduate school, that the first face of God that most young people see is their mother. Before they know that there is a God, they know these people who are living and loving into their lives and that the first introduction they have to God or to Christ is through their parents. In God's Word, you think about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and think about the context of what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They've just spent 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness because God had promised them a land of their own, that they'd be a great nation and a land of their own. And when they were at the doorstep of the the new land, the land flowing with milk and honey, they sent out 12 spies. And 10 spies says, we can't do it. They're too strong. We're too weak. Only two spies, Caleb and Joshua, said we can take the land. And so the people listened to the two instead of the ten, spent 40 years in the wilderness. So the book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law for the generation that is following the generation that quit on God. That said, God can't get this land for us. And what God is trying to do is trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. So they're going to try again. They're once again at the doorstep of the promised land. And He doesn't want the mistakes and lack of faith of the parents to be passed on to the next generation. So He says, here's gang, what we're going to do. The previous generation died in the wilderness. And all you've got of the last generation, you've got two guys left. Caleb and Joshua. And then the children of their generation. And so he says to the children of their generation who are now the adults, who are now the moms and dads, he says, the first thing I want from you is I need you to put the commandments of the Lord in your heart. You need to make faithfulness to God a part of your DNA and who you are. He says, they shall be on your heart. But then he says, you shall teach them diligently. And he's going to talk about, let. he says, basically, let talking about things of God Be a part of everyday life for you. Talk about it when you sit down and when you rise up. Put it on the doorpost of your homes. They took it quite literally in the sense of where they put this statement in the homes or in the tents of the Jewish people. 
They didn't always take it literally when it came to actually talking to the young people about faith and living faith in front of them. But God understood that if they were going to last in the promised land, it was only going to last if faith was passed on to the next generation. So He said, pass it on to the next generation. But notice, before He said to pass it on, He said the, the laws, the ordinance of God, the commandments and statutes of God need to be in your heart. I cannot give what I do not have. So He said, first of all, you need to make a commitment to God, parents. Second of all, you need to be evangelists in your own home. We need to be evangelists in our own home, passing on faith to the next generation. In the writings of Paul, Paul is going to say basically the same thing when he makes specifically a charge to dads in Ephesians chapter 6. It's ironic in light of today's culture in which the spiritual leader in most homes is a mom. And yet here he says, dads, the buck stops with you. You make sure that your children are brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God didn't need any of the research I talked about. He knew how we worked. He knew how He made us. He knew the value of parents passing on faith to the next generation. There are many responsibilities we have as parents. We have responsibilities to protect our children, to make sure they have food, that they have somewhere safe to live, that they have clothing to wear. But what God says is job number one is giving them faith. And if I give them food and don't give them faith, then I have failed at my most important task. And all I'm saying is that the research supports what God's been trying to tell us for thousands of years. But it doesn't stop there. As we think about what we can do as a congregation to help families, in this part, I'm talking a little bit to the elders and the preachers and the youth workers and others. We need to expect our parents to be the youth ministers. Most of my background, I spent 23 years in local work, and a lot of that was preaching. Preaching is most of my background. But I've spent also a lot of time in youth ministry. Every bad thing that John does, he got from me. It's not from his mom and his dad, so don't hold that against them. But one of the things I learned in youth ministry is that the youth ministers are not the youth ministers. The youth ministers are the moms and dads, and the youth ministers are the assistants to the real youth ministers. And I often can ascertain the philosophy of a youth minister by carrying on a conversation. And you can often find in that, if a youth minister views the parents as his assistants, then they have a warped view of what youth ministry is. But if they view themselves, if a youth minister views himself as a resource, an encourager, an assistant, an additional mentor helping the moms and the dads, then I think that's a biblical concept of youth ministry. We need to expect our parents to be the youth ministers. We need to provide workshops and retreats. It needs to be a regular part of our DNA, and I'm glad that this day is a part of your congregational DNA. We need to help them understand youth culture. I don't think we do enough to help parents and adults to understand youth culture. Youth culture is constantly changing, and because of the flood of information, what they're exposed to and their culture is changing faster than ever before in human history. So if you understood youth culture five years ago, you don't anymore. If you understood it ten years ago, or at least thought you did, we thought we did, we don't anymore. 
So we need to constantly be educated so that we try our best to understand where they're coming from. We need to train parents in how to talk about faith in their homes. Uh, one of the things I talk about, a lot of times as preachers and youth ministers, here's what we'll do. We'll get up and say to parents, you ought to talk to your kids about God. And here's the deal. Okay, we've been trained. Okay, I, I have degrees from multiple schools in which they train me how to take a passage from the Bible and draw out of that passage what the original author intended, intended, interpret it in light of today's culture, and then apply it to the lives of those I'm having a conversation with. How many of you have parents have had that? You see, it's easy for me to stand up there as a preacher and say, you ought to talk to your kids about faith, and they're like, well, yeah, you've got 12 years of school, you've got 16 years of school telling you how to do it. I didn't get that. And so what I'd like to challenge us to do is I'd like us to preach at parents less and provide parents resources more. In other words, actually help them with how to talk about faith with their children. Give them resources. I think about the youth minister that influenced my daughters when they were growing up. One of the things he provided for all of us as parents is a five-minute Bible. And it, had, it was a year's worth of readings where every day you had a section of Scripture to read that would take you through the basics of the Old and New Testament and then a series of discussion questions and sometimes a few little notes at the bottom that it, there were about a hundred of us families that got that book every year for several years. And so we did an Old Testament, we did a New Testament, and then we would use both. What I'm trying to make is that is, that is a youth minister who's not just saying, hey, you need to talk to your kids about Christ. That's youth minister who's giving us resources to help us talk to our young people about Jesus. So I want to challenge those of us who are leaders. Preach at them less. Provide them resources and training more. Now, I often again tell youth ministers, don't tell parents how to raise kids. Okay? You introduce them to God's Word and principles in God's Word. You let parents who have raised kids talk to parents about how to raise kids. The last thing I needed to be doing when I was 27 is telling anybody how to raise their kids. I can remember the, the first preacher I worked with, he just, I can remember one day in the office, he said, I just can't wait. He said, I said, for what? He said, for when you have kids. Because you'll have a different view when you finally have kids. But also, not only do parents have power, people need people. And what the research done, National Study of Youth and Religion found is, Next to the influence of mom and dad, you have the influence of other mature Christian adults in their lives. Other parents, coaches, teachers, teachers at school. There are some young people who spend more time with their ball coaches than anybody else in their life. And especially if their parents are disengaged or abusive, then that ball coach or that English teacher, whoever it is they spend that bulk of time with, becomes the primary moral and faith mentor and influencer in that young person's life. One study found in DeVries' book on family-based youth ministry found that those who kept their faith in his research, or the research he quoted actually, found that those who kept their faith into their 20s and beyond had about a half dozen mature, faithful Christian adults who mentored into their life, uh, in, their, in their lives and their teen years. Another study by Wesley Black in the Christian Education Journal talked about that in the research that he conducted, 
they found that if they had less than three mature Christian adults who would live and love and mentor into their lives in the high school years, that they were less likely to keep their faith when they grew older. He said they need to see what a walking, talking Christian looks like. Not just hear sermons about what a Christian is supposed to do. They need to actually see it happening. See, I learned how to tie my shoes, not because, you know, mom and dad said, you know, the, the, the rabbit goes around and through the hole. They, I actually watched them do it. They actually did it on my shoes. I watched them do it, and that's how I, Think of what we do. Most of what we do, we learn because we watch somebody else do it. We probably hold a fork when we eat because we watch somebody else hold a fork that way. They need to watch somebody hold Jesus. They need to know what it looks like in the life of a Christian. One study that I read, I think it was done in Australia. They actually looked at young people who only went to morning worship with the congregation and young people who basically only went to the teen Bible class. Which group do you think they found was more faithful? The group that only went to morning worship but didn't necessarily go to the teen class or the group that went only to the teen class and rarely went to worship? It was the group that went to worship. Now let me make it crystal clear. I'm not anti-teen class. I'm absolutely not anti-teen class. If we understand how people learn, we will understand the value of having classes that target at times the, the, where people are in life. A fifth grader thinks differently than a 12th grader. A 12th grader thinks differently than a 25-year-old. A 25-year-old thinks differently than a 35-year-old. So there's value in having educational opportunities where those in the room are at the same thinking and learning level. But the research is also overwhelming that they need intergenerational contact. And what they found is in that particular study is that those who actually worship with the rest of the congregation were more apt to keep their faith than those who just hung out with the youth group and didn't interact with the rest of the congregation. Research found in the book Sticky Faith reinforces that. That they found, in fact, one of the things they talk about, is that if, if you want a silver bullet or a smoking gun, as they wrestled with, what they were looking at is young people who've just come out of high school, moving into college. What is it that helps them to keep their faith? And they said, if you want to talk about a silver bullet we found, it would be this, that if they had intergenerational worship with multiple Christians of multiple ages, they tended to be more faithful. And they talked about not only the opportunities to worship with those older than them, they talked about a huge value was them being involved in those younger than them. That when teenagers were invested in the faith development of those in elementary school and the small kids, when they were involved in their activities, involved in their classes, they tended to keep their faith as they moved onward. That the more you connected them up age-wise and down age-wise, the more tentacles they had to more different people of different generations, the more likely they were to keep their faith when they moved into their 20s and beyond. And I want to go back to my research. I mentioned that when you move past the internal factors, next in line is family. But then notice what comes after that. You've got the influence of the youth minister. You've got the influence of the preacher. You've got the influence of adults. Like I think 34% of them just said another adult in the congregation. Let me put that in context. One of their choices was an elder in their congregation. One of their choices was a deacon in their congregation. 
So what they're saying is, in fact, one of their choices was their Bible class teacher in their congregation. So when they checked another adult in their congregation, they're saying somebody that's not the preacher, not the youth minister, not an elder, not a deacon, and not their Bible class teacher. It's just somebody else they encountered in the congregation. And over one-third of them said, I'm going to be a preacher because of somebody who didn't hold any of those positions, who stepped into my life and mentored me and helped me to have this vision and this dream. Now let me throw out something else that may get personal. Only 6% in my study mentioned an elder. But you look at these numbers and these percentages, only 6% mentioned an elder. I think we need to think about the level of contact that we have. They don't just, they, they need to know us and we need to know them if we serve in that position. DeVries laments the fact that we've systematically isolated our young people from those intergenerational contacts that help them become what God wants them to be. We've separated them from the models that they need to be watching. He actually goes on in his book to say, and when they do watch us, the model or example they see in us is not what Jesus would want them to see in us. Chap Clark, in his book Hurt, and he's got a new one out, Hurt 2.0, he says, adolescents have been cut off too long from adults who have the power and experience to exhort, escort them into greater society. For all oh, 25 years or more, maybe 30 now, I know at least 20 or 25 years, you've had this idea that's thrown out in youth ministry of the one-eared Mickey Mouse model. Where you have the, the face of Mickey Mouse is the congregation and the one ear is the youth group and they're only loosely connected to each other where we have allowed youth groups to become a congregation within a congregation. Now don't misunderstand me. I think it's wonderful to have a teen class. I think it's wonderful to have teen devotionals. I think it's wonderful to have teen activities. If we know anything about how people develop and learn, and we've looked at Erickson and Piaget and all of that stuff about how people develop, we will understand the value of him having time to do things for themselves. But if that becomes an isolated environment, a church within a church and the ties are cut off to the rest of the congregation and the rest of the age group, that is unbiblical, it's unhealthy, and it's unhealthy for faith. I'm not asking us to go one way or another. We tend to be pendulum swingers in the church. We feel uncomfortable with something, we'll go as far as we can in the other direction when we just needed to move back to center. And so we end up being as far from center in the other direction as we originally were. So I'm not saying go to never let teens have their own class. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm also saying don't isolate them over here away from the people who get to model Jesus for them and who get to love and live into their lives and help them to know Jesus Christ hand to hand and face to face and life to life. DeVries goes on to say when an organ is removed from a living body, that organ dies and often the body dies with it. My hand is alive as long as it's connected to my arm. But once it's disconnected from my arm, my hand will die. Let's don't. Our young people need to understand what, what I call or other people call body life. That we're a family. That we're the body of Christ. And every part of the body needs to be connected, valued, loved, and cared for. Several years ago, I was asked to talk about how to connect to college students. So I've, I've never tried to be presumptuous. So I actually went to my students and said, okay, they want me to talk about how to reach college students you tell me what connects to college students. And one of the top factors that they said back to me was 
relationship. They said, we want a teacher who genuinely cares about us, who will ask about us, who will check up on us, who cares about our lives. A teacher who will share their own lives and their own struggles, who will be real and genuine with us, and who will care about our lives and our real struggles. And these couple of quotes that I just put up there are just some examples that embody what they are saying. What the research is saying, the key to faith retention is relationship. Relationship relationship. In the book Sticky Faith, they found for those who go away to college that if one adult outside the youth program will reach out to them and contact them during their first semester, the odds of them staying faithful through college skyrockets. I want every one of you to think about that. You're probably thinking, oh, the youth minister ought to do something, or the preacher ought to do something, or the elders or deacons, whoever you want to label ought to do something. But what the research says is, all of those people can matter, and it can make a difference, but to some degree, they're kind of assuming they'll hear from them. It's when another adult that wasn't the youth minister, or wasn't one of those regular chaperones in the youth group, when one of those adults sends them a card, sends them a care package, and says, hey, we're thinking about you and praying for you, the odds of them being faithful just explode. Man, can you imagine if everybody in this room would do that first semester for every college student that walks out of this congregation? I don't care if they go to school just down the road or halfway around the world. The research says you could change their faith life forever. In the book, Why They Left done by Dr. Yakeley, formerly of Harding University. He looked at 100 congregations and almost 5,000 young people to look at what were the factors in faith retention for them. And this is going to be studies of our young people. Now there's a lot of reasons that go into this, but here's what he found. 43.4% of young people who went, who didn't go to college at all will be faithful. 49.7% of those who leave high school and go to a state school will be faithful. 85% of those who leave high school and go to a Christian school will stay faithful. Now, there's various factors that go into that, and I'm not going to try to unpack all of those today, but that's pretty powerful testimony. The more faith mentors they encounter at each stage of life, the greater the likelihood they will keep their faith to the next stage of life. Number two, they found that the more extreme congregation congregations tend to have fewer young people that kept their faith. The more extreme that a congregation was in liberalism, and I'm not crazy about using labels, but I don't know how else to say this, or the more extreme a congregation was in ultra-conservatism, the less likely the young people were to be faithful when they moved out of high school. Extremes drove them from Jesus. And then their choices when they were in college. Almost 97% of those who placed membership in a local congregation stayed faithful. 81.9, basically 82%, who didn't place membership but regularly attended the same congregation in college stayed faithful. 
68% of those who attended regularly somewhere, but they kind of floated from congregation to congregation. We used to kid when I was an undergrad. Wednesday night, everybody went to whoever was having a potluck or was feeding everybody. But even though they didn't place membership or stay at one place, as long as they were somewhere, 68% of them stayed faithful. Those who only occasionally went somewhere, 12% stayed faithful. And those who didn't get connected at all, you can see the numbers. When a young person goes away to college, what Yakely found in his study is the top three things they struggle with is are friendship, aloneness, and finding a church. So whatever you're doing and working with college students, those ought to be the centerpiece of what you're doing. Help them find friendship, make sure they never feel alone, and help them to find a church family. That ought to be the business of every congregation that's near a university, and it ought to be the business of every Christian university. Help them to find friends, make sure they don't feel alone, and connect them to a local congregation. One of the most recent research studies is found in the book Growing Young. And in this, they identified various factors. They found ten things that were not true of churches that grew young. And what that means is, it's the idea that the church grew because of an investment in young people. And so here are some things that they said were not influences, some myths that they dispelled. The size of the congregation, the location of the congregation, the average age of the congregation, how modern or big the facilities were, how big the budget, whether or not it was contemporary worship service, whether they, you know, some have this idea, we've got to water down teaching so everybody will be okay with it. You've got to kind of back off on taking any real strong stances because then they'll go away. What they found is none of that, none of that influences a church growing and having a large number of young people that then influence the growth of congregation. They said there's no evidence that you have to be entertaining. They did identify six things that they consistently found in churches that, as they put it, were growing young. One, they had unlocked the key chain of leadership. They let young people participate in leadership opportunities. Okay, and and that, that would go beyond just letting them do something for lads to leaders. But they gave them real opportunities to participate based on what they were able to do at their age in leadership opportunities. They emphasized young people and uh, empathized with young people. And so what they tried to do is spend less time judging young people and more time trying to understand what it was like to be a young person. Because when they really tried to wrestle with what is the world like for a 16-year-old it changed their attitude. They just never really stepped into their lifestyle. He said, take Jesus seriously. Doesn't mean that you don't talk about doctrine, etc. But that what they found is the ones that are thriving are churches and where they put a lot of emphasis on living like Jesus and how would Jesus live and what Jesus taught and following what Jesus taught. Creating a warm environment where people actually felt welcomed and they had lots of intergenerational relationships they didn't just give lip service to youth and to parent families, but they really emphasized that at every level of what they do, one of the themes in youth ministry now is called adoptive youth ministry, where basically the whole congregation adopts all of the young people. Whether they have parents who are Christians or not, or have parents at all, they suddenly have a whole congregation of parents, and that everybody adopts and buys into their lives. And being the best neighbors. One of the things they found with a lot of young people is that they grow frustrated when you have a lot of talk about doctrine. 
Not, not that they have a problem. They have no problem with you talking about biblical teaching and doctrine and standing for what's right. But at least this research, you can ask these young people whether that's true of them. But in this research, they said of the young people they talked to, what frustrated the young people is when they hear all that emphasis on doctrine and they see hungry people, homeless people, disenfranchised people, people who can't get justice and the church doesn't care. And so that disconnect drove them away. Okay, you tell me to be like Jesus, yet there's hungry people right there and we're doing nothing to feed them. You say be like Jesus, and yet we got all these people living downtown. You know, one of the reasons that my family placed membership at Sherrod Avenue is that every week from November through March, we're a part of the Room at the End program. If you live in downtown Florence, you're not going to live on the streets. If you want a place to sleep, our school, Heritage Christian, and our congregation, Sherrod Avenue, is going to be a part of a community of churches and schools that are saying, come, we've got a bed for you. And young people are saying, don't just talk about Jesus to me. Be Jesus in front of me. And then if I see you love people and care about people and do all the things Jesus did to care about people, then I'll listen to what you have to say about doctrine. I want to go back to Deuteronomy where he said, pass faith on to the next generation. I want us to remember that the nation of Israel was a communal society. And in the culture of the ancient Jews, when you said, pass it on to your children, they would not have interpreted that if, if I have any concept of what their communal lifestyle was like. Then when they heard that, they would have naturally assumed that means moms and dads, but they would never have restricted it to moms and dads. They would have taken it as a community charge. We, as a community, help our young people to know the Lord. We can't, as a congregation, just say, moms and dads, you need to do this. We, as a community, need to say, we need to do this. And that's what Paul was talking about as he wrote to Titus and said, the older are to teach the younger. Don't just hire help who can mentor the young people. Step in and help to teach young people. Retention is relational. And the message is very clear in Scripture that God says that faith forms in family and faith forms in fellowship. That the primary youth ministers are the parents and that's the way we need to think in the philosophies of our congregations. That it's mandatory that we resource and train our parents. The Mickey Mouse model of youth ministry is unbiblical. Members meeting and knowing the young people, it's not optional. Members modeling faith is critical. And members mentoring young people is not just helpful, it is transformational. We can no longer have a world in which just a few people know the young people. Everybody in this room needs to be invested in their lives. When they walk across the stage in May, they ought to have to add seats or bleachers to make room for this congregation to be at their graduations. When they step up to the plate, they ought to see their congregation there in the stands calling their name. When they have their plays and when they have their recitals. We've got to live, love, and mentor into their lives if we want them to know Jesus Christ. As you think about George who came to realize what the world would be like without them, what I hope has happened today 
is I want you to realize what their lives might be like without you. They are amazing, they're wonderful, and they want to know God. In the first place, they'll probably see Him is in the face of their parents and the people in this room. What will God look like if that's the case? Will you bow with me? Father, we thank You for our young people. They're a gift from You. Thank You for their energy and their passion that feeds and motivates us. Help us to encourage and mentor and be Your presence in their lives. Help us as parents. Help us as mentors and friends. Father, thank You for Your Son who showed us how to mentor others. Help us to walk in His footsteps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.